Yeah, so we're concluding the Amazing Grace sermon series that we've been on for six weeks. And uh, if you haven't been here, it's all good. You, didn't, you, you don't have to have, to have been to all of them to understand. But what we're trying to do is come at this word grace from a lot of different angles because it's a very deep and rich and complicated word. And it's one that I didn't understand very well, if I'm honest. And so what we've been doing is attaching little words to the beginning of grace to try and capture all that it is. And so to conclude, we're talking about inviting grace today. And uh, this is a, it's an interesting word, invitation. And I hadn't thought deeply about it in terms of the word invitation as it pertains to grace. And uh, the thing that actually stuck out to me in my preparation for this is that invitation has built into it uh, quite a bit of effort that's actually implied into an invitation. If you think about like a, being invited to a wedding, uh, you know when you get, the, you get the card in the mail and it's always really nice and a whole bunch of, looks like a Pinterest, you know, thing exploded in your hand and, and it's beautiful. Or you maybe get you the paperless post thing and you click on the email and the little thing shoots up out of the envelope and this beautiful little animation and you're invited and it's like, yay, I, I matter to them. It's a beautiful little moment. And then you realize that now your Saturday's gone, it's in Duncan <laughs> on the island or something and you have to buy a gift now, and it's like, oh, this is actually rather inconvenient. And it's all kind of, um, did I, that, were you guys in Duncan? That wasn't a reference to you. It's close to Duncan, though, wasn't it? I loved coming to your wedding. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but it's like, it's, there's an inconvenience and an effort implied. <laughs> wow, hi, guys. Uh, okay. Um, there's an inconvenience implied to being invited to a wedding, but you're fine with it, right? You're fine with it, because it's, it's great. But there is some travel sometimes involved and some effort. And, you know, continuing with the, wet, continuing with the wedding analogy, uh, you hire a photographer to capture the wedding day. You don't hire a photographer to capture wedding planning. <laughs> you know, all those late night conversations of couples like strangling each other and slashing guest lists and crying and mother-in-laws and I don't know what else you have to deal with when you're planning a wedding, but it's like that stuff's not captured a champion, but there's a huge uphill battle in a way to plan this beautiful moment, and of course it's worth it. But uh, we always like to post and brag about these photo-worthy moments, but they're not possible without the journey and the mountain climb that comes before them. And so if we think about God inviting us into his presence, like an invitation, I think a lot of the time we just think about the wedding day a ton, to use the metaphor. But we don't spend a lot of time going, what is, the, what is implied in that invitation that comes very, that's obvious to us in other invitations in our life? But what's, what's, what's implied in God's invitation to come to his presence? What is, I'll use the word effort, which is a scary word to use in sermons because it gets so misunderstood. But what does effort look like? What, is, what does it cost you? How much intentionality is there in it? And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, the obvious implication into being invited into God's presence is it has something to do with our devotional life. Is a term that Christians use a lot of the time. It's, you know, how do you spend time with God? Or some people call them quiet times and devos and um, Bible studies and well, whatever you call your time that you set aside to be with Jesus and just be in his presence. Obviously, reading his word is, is a often a super helpful thing to do in that time. Sometimes it's sitting and being quiet, but at the end of the day, you're making the effort, so to speak, to encounter him and be with him and walk with him. And sometimes it might feel like a mountaintop moment, and sometimes it might feel dry, and you have read something in the Old Testament that has a lot of big words and places you never heard of, and it's like, all right, cool, well, that was that. 
But of course we know that a devotional life is a devotional life. It's not a moment. And so let's read some scripture here. We're going to be looking at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 12 and 13. It'll be on the screen behind me. And um, let's just read about what, what, in Hebrews, what it says about what God's word is trying to do, you know, in these moments where we choose to be with him and encounter him. Listen to this. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes uh, to him to whom we must give an account. So, Obviously, it's really powerful in spending time in God's presence with his word. It's living and active, and it's, it almost gives this impression that it's connecting with the deepest part of you, and it cuts away all the things that don't belong. And so in a, in a way, there's a lot of effort, and it's a little bit painful, and it's, it's, it looks like a journey, and it's deep. So has anybody, you know, has anybody struggled in their devotional life? Like, I think we all have, right? I don't think I've met someone, if you were to ask them their long-standing journey with encountering God, that wouldn't talk about some valley they went through, some dry time, some time when it didn't make sense, those seven years where you just didn't pick up your Bible, <laughs> you know? Everybody has these seemingly these stories, and I think we downplay them a lot, and we go, oh, that's, that sucks. That sucks that it was so hard for so long. I'm so glad you figured it out. I don't know, I think that in my head sometimes, don't you? But what if, what if there was just as much beauty in the journey of it? You know, in that wrestle, and the pain of it, and then the dry times. I mean, if you look at scripture, I mean, it's just good theology to know that the, the most classic thing to say in a sermon ever is the journey is more, just as important as the destination or whatever. It sounds like Instagram post, but we all kind of know that this is just, we know it intuitively that there's, we love the mountaintop moments, but it, the journey is important, and I find in our devotional life, if it's dry or if it doesn't isn't make sense or if it's costly or if we're not getting a lot out of it or something, that we feel like it's wrong, and there's something wrong with us and something wrong with God. That's even more convenient, and I don't know. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, controversial thing to say, I guess, but just because God invites you into his amazing grace, like into his presence by his grace, doesn't mean it's not going to require some effort on your part. I think he would love you to meet him and, and walk towards him. So what does that mean? I think about uh, Moses having to climb a mountain to be with God, you know, the ultimate Devo time, getting the Ten Commandments written in front of you. That's a pretty good Devo. And he has to climb a mountain to get there big one. I've been there. And uh, I have a, my best devotional moment, my most Moses-like meeting with God moment I think I've ever had personally was, this is, such a, this is such a brag, but it's true. Like, it was in Sinai, like, where that happened, like, in the same valley-ish area where Moses, like, I'm, like, looking at the mountain that he probably climbed. Like, it's so powerful. And we were encouraged, you know, as one does when you wake up in the Sinai Desert, uh, to go and climb the side of a hill, you know, in this little valley, this beautiful, it looks like Mars. Sinai looks like Mars. It's the best way to describe it. And you climb up this little valley. I don't know, I don't know how you, <laughs> this is kind of silly. I should just say red rock, not that you've all been to Mars. Anyways, um, <laughs> you know Mars? <laughs> so uh, you go into this valley, and it's red, just red rocks, red boulders. And I'm sitting on this 
big round boulder overlooking this valley with an oasis at the bottom of it. Like, it's like a screensaver. And uh, it's, it's, the sun hasn't come up yet, and it's a cool morning, and it's going to be 40 degrees, but right now it's like 20, and there's just a breeze flowing through the valley, and I'm reading stories of the Israelites marching here. Oh, my kids, pretty kids. And then the, uh, I, I kid you not, it was like a light turned on, and the whole valley, like, lit up. In the, over the course of like two seconds because the sun just appeared in the very distant, perfectly aimed point. The sun hits it and the whole valley turns from dark red to bright red. And the sh- there's like shadows that just hit this valley. And I'm like, this is nuts. This is, that was a mountaintop moment for sure. And, uh, but that was, that was after a month of like marching around Israel, learning stuff. That was six days into a hike in the desert. I smelled so bad and it was hard work getting there. We climbed over all these peaks and valleys and then all of a sudden it was just like this aha moment. I thought I wouldn't trade the whole experience for anything. So what I'm not saying is that every diva was like that. And what I'm not saying is you have to be in Sinai to you know, encounter God. But what I am saying is that uh, that whole journey is, is the story. It's not just that one moment. It's like, man, there was a lot of effort implied in that. Flew around the world to be there just to encounter God, actually. So uh, you can put this quote on the screen. It's by a guy named Dallas Willard, just a modern theologian, but I really like it. And it's quoted all the time now these days because it's very helpful for us. But it says that grace is opposed to earning, not effort. This is really important. If you think about the wedding invite, you are invited. Like the wedding is paid for, the invitation is in the mail. It's yours. You are invited to be there. You don't have to earn that. It's, there's nothing to earn. But you got to get there. Like you, you got to go. You got to go be part of it. And so there's, I know maybe that seems complicated, but I think it's intuitive actually. Of what does it look like to not have to earn something, but to participate in the invitation? So, uh, I think of all the aspects of amazing grace, one of the best, if not the best, is this principle of you have a standing invitation to come before God. Like you are allowed to, you're expected to, you're invited. It is his joy to have paved the way through what Jesus did for you to encounter him and be with him. And like tug on his robe and be totally invited. That's an am- that is amazing <laughs> that we get to be with God, that the veil was torn, that God's presence is now with us and you have a standing invitation to that. But it is a standing invitation. It's not a standing overwhelmed and bowled over. <laughs> You're not like <laughs> taken out by this reality that gives you no choice in the matter. It's like, no, it is a standing invite. So why wouldn't we accept this? amazing invitation to come before God and be invited into his presence, which is what we were designed for. <laughs> you were designed to be, to know God. And this is going to, this is going to bring you eternal security and love and, and meaning and purpose in this life and the next. And like, man, if you got that in the mail, you'd be pretty stoked. So what, what, why don't we? Well, I'll give you my two favorite reasons why I don't often. And the first one is shame. I feel as though I do not deserve to be in his presence. I don't deserve to be in the throne room. I don't deserve to be his child. And a lot of what happens is we 
take the shame of our sin that's very real and very palpable. We've all felt ashamed of something that we've done. And then what we do is we take that and we wear it as the identity of who we are and we don't feel like we belong in the throne room with God. Make sense? Maybe this is, maybe this is you. Maybe, you. maybe you're timid to approach the Father. Maybe you're timid because of something that you've done because you're wearing that shame as an identity. I, to keep using the, the wedding ceremony metaphor, have you guys ever been like a plus one to a wedding or known that you were like at the bottom of the invite list and you're like, I think I squeaked in here. <laughs> or you're someone's kid and you came. I, I don't even been to a wedding where you know you're not, you don't really know the couple that well and you're kind of like, oh, I feel guilty for eating this food right now. <laughs> like I, I don't deserve this. <laughs> and you don't know me that well and I'm just gonna consume something and then leave. I'm not giving a speech. I don't know anybody here all that well. I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> I think you've, we've felt that. And if you haven't been in that place, congratulations. It's, it's, it's not fun. But you, we, you can imagine what it's like to be in a place where everyone paid for something and you're like, oh, this is, this is awkward. I don't deserve this. And you wear the shame of your seemingly unwarranted invite and you wear that all night. So... I think if we wear shame as an identity, it'll be very difficult to consistently approach God every day, let alone with confidence, to confidently approach him in the morning or in the evening or in the cool of the day, whatever it is, like to confidently come before him if you don't feel worthy of that and you don't feel as though you're a son. Uh, there's a great, um, uh, Paul Morgan gave me a, a great uh, analogy for this uh, after, the, after the last service. And um, so I'll share it with you. Uh, president Kennedy, I think it was, uh, what he would do is when he, when he was president, he would let his kids play in the Oval Office during whatever meeting, like often. And there's a great picture of, of uh, Kennedy standing around with all his generals and his like four-year-old boys underneath the Oval Office desk, like looking up at them. Isn't that, that's such an interesting picture. Now, if you picture a deep, scary, Cold War meeting between Kennedy and his generals, I'm assuming. I don't know U.S. history that well, but I think that was when Kennedy was around the Cold War times. And so you picture some super deep moment. That four-year-old is the only person on the planet who's comfortable interrupting that meeting. The only person. And Kennedy would often do this, apparently, that he would be sitting around the Oval Office of those couches that maybe you saw on the West Wing, and, uh, and he jumps up on the, his, Kennedy's lap, and he would often conduct meetings with his four-year-old boy on his lap. The generals didn't know what to do with this. It's kind of a famous thing about him, apparently. But uh, a child has no shame. Like, he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that there, I can't possibly fathom a reason why my dad wouldn't want me sitting on his lap right now. He has no context for the Cold War and nuclear holocaust. Like, he's just, nope, I'm that guy's, that guy's son. That's a beautiful picture of what it's like to, to not wear shame as an identity and to feel worthy of your father's attention. So that's the number one, that's one of the main reasons I would not want to approach God because I don't feel worthy of that and I don't feel like his child, which is silly if we read God's word, the lengths that he went to to show you how loved you were and how much of a son or daughter you are. <clears throat> Second reason is no shame whatsoever. What do I mean by that? Uh, 
I have to split hairs in semantics with this because the word shame is a, a very complicated word too, and people, we have a lot, we use it in a lot of different ways. But it would scare me if I was incapable of feeling ashamed of myself. If I had, if I was able to isolate myself so much that my sin had no repercussions relationally, which is kind of what shame is, right? Like, you don't, you're not really as ashamed if you sin by yourself. It's, it's a very, shame is a relational thing. Like, I'm out of relationship now, and I feel ashamed, and I don't like you seeing me that way. I'm like, if I don't have, if I have no capacity for shame, that's really scary. It's like, it's like being a relational psychopath, in a sense. There's no repercussions to your sin. So, th- in Western culture, we hate this because we think shame is an inherently negative thing. Uh, wearing shame as an identity is no good. Like, wearing that as who you are, no, 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 we can't do that because that's not who we are. But I think we fall into another ditch where it's like, don't you dare make me feel ashamed of myself because I don't like that feeling. You're like, neither do I. But it's also a very helpful dashboard meter for how in relationship you are with other people. And there's a really, there's a really great way to never, ever feel shame. You know, I, just isolate yourself and don't have intimate relationships. Just be alone. You won't, you won't feel ashamed. Way less. And ignore God, and it's a great way to reduce shame. But I'm not sure that's how we're supposed to get rid of shame. So I think we, come, we get rid of shame by approaching a throne of grace, but we have to acknowledge the weight of our sin in that time. It's like, I am separated from God because of my sin. And I'm worried in our culture that we belittle sin in an attempt to get rid of shame. That's not the way to get rid of shame, to make sin smaller and less important and have less weight and not be really that bad. It's a temporary solution, but it will bite us. So let's continue in Hebrews to figure out how we get out of this. How do we, how do we not be timid and wear identity of shame? And how do we actually feel the full weight of what we've done and need grace and need him to put like salvation. So, continuing in verse 14 in Hebrews, verse, uh, verse four. Therefore, so we've, 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 we've done our Devo of, we've done the Devo verse of just before this of like opening up our hearts and letting the word speak to us and like knowing who we are and not having, wearing an identity of shame but also being fully aware of how deep our sin is and our depravity and needing God. Like we've met, we've encountering him, we're putting in the effort. So, Where does Jesus come into all this? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So Hebrews is being addressed to the Hebrews, and this is a Jewish culture that is very used to the whole high priest system. Just to catch you up on what that is, since the dawn of that people group, there were priests who made sacrifices, and they followed the Levitical law as close as they could, and they obeyed God's commands, and they made the sacrifices, and they did all the ceremonial washings, and they were clean, they didn't touch dead things, and just being as holy as a person could be on their own effort. And God set up a bunch of systems that would 
pay for the sins of the people. It had a lot to do with sacrifices. Don't have time to go into it today, but the priests would make those sacrifices on behalf of the people. And they mediated, is a good word to use, they mediated the relationship between God and his people, right? The, the priests mediated that through sacrifices and uh, being the, yeah, the mediator. So very important because God wants to be with his people and unless there's sacrifices made and unless there's atonement for sin, God can't be with his people, which is the whole point of the Bible. It's the meta narrative, is reconciliation with God and his people, right? So the Hebrews are probably very confused with this idea of Jesus being the great high priest. No more priests needed. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the ultimate mediator. And he's way better than anything you guys have had before. It's complete, it's done, it's all over. I can imagine that being very confusing to the Jewish culture of going, wait, what? This is the whole foundation of life. All our society is built around sacrifices and priests. And, and the, the principle being is that the priest has to do their job right. And if they haven't done it right, if they haven't done all the ceremonial washings, the high priest who got to go into the Holy of Holies like once a year to sweep it or get, I don't know what he was doing in there, but he, they had to go in there once a year. And if you weren't, if, you, if that priest had hadn't done it all right, they die. They just die in God's presence. And they, used, they tied ropes around their ankles so that if they died, they could just pull them out. Someone else wouldn't die. I don't know how they figured out that the first time. That must have been a real pickle, hey? The first time someone died didn't come out. Oof, what are we going to do? So uh, I don't know how they got around that. But the rope thing worked great later. And so this is fascinating. Uh, the priest has to do their job right. So Jesus, as our high priest, is good news on two levels. He's the new priest for two reasons. And you can put, that up, put it up on the screen. The first one is that he is like us. He is like us. And he can empathize with our temptation and struggle and sin. Meaning he's actually in the pit with us. He is, there's empathy. And empathy is very, very important. Because if, uh, if you want a great high priest... Uh, to mediate between you and God, you would want them to be with you. And if the person can't empathize, you feel distant. If the person has no awareness of what you're going through, that's a blockage. Like, you don't get it. You don't get it, you don't get what I've gone through. Do you guys think that you are any more tempted than Jesus was? He was offered the whole world if he was to follow the enemy's plan. He was offered the whole world. Have you been offered the whole world? Do you think you were, do you think you were, uh, more uh, afflicted than Jesus was? I don't think so. Not to mention his horrific death. He carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. I think, I think he can understand what you're going through. And yet he did not sin. And this is where the second important thing about why Jesus is the best high priest is that he is not like us. He's not like us at all <laughs> in some very important ways. So he empathizes in our pain fully fully grabbing hold of what you're going through and able to sit with you in the pit in not a patronizing way. Like he's not like, yeah, come on, hurry up. He's like, no, 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 I understand. I understand exactly what you're going through. And yet, I am not like you and I have overcome the world and I can actually bring you out of it. I'm capable of saving you. And in that way, he's not like us at all. And I think what happens a lot of the time is we really enjoy the empathy aspect 
of, it's a very important aspect, right? Like you need to be able to identify with people. But we end up building support groups for ourselves that don't have any power to bring us out of it. And sometimes we can build whole communities of socially for ourselves that just commiserate, you know, in the depths of our sin and oh, woe is me. I don't think that's what church is. Sometimes church can become that where it's like, well, we're all hooped and I guess at least we have each other. <laughs> that's nice. But we're also following someone we're following someone that has the power to bring us out of it. And so this great high priest that's mediating us between, that's mediating between us and God is like, because he can empathize and bring us out, he's able to lead us through the whole journey right alongside us, which is the whole beauty of it. Because we just want solutions. We want to be empathized with or we want to be set free. But Jesus is going, how about I'm with you always? Like, how about, how about I just never leave you? And I, I love what Rachel was saying in worship about this idea that we go, oh, I'll praise you in the mountains and the valleys, and as long as we get to the mountaintop eventually. There's that little asterisk that we put on those songs sometimes, which is not what the song's saying at all. But we go like, oh, man, as long as there's a mountaintop at the end, I'm, I'm cool with praising you. But it's like, actually, what if the joy was the journey? Like, what if, what if the reason why the effort was so worth it is because the effort isn't to get to God. Like he's with you the whole time in your effort. That's the beauty of Jesus being the great high priest of knowing where you're at and knowing where you're going is he doesn't have to ever leave you. He can just always be with you and you have a standing invitation to be with him all the time. So uh, our high priest is extremely approachable and personal and yet powerful enough to transform us. Best analogy for this that I could think of was I had two math teachers in high school. One of them was a really nice guy, but was a mathematical genius, and he was the worst teacher ever. Like, he didn't help me, and he seemed confused when I was confused. Mr. McGee, yeah. And uh, nice guy, but like, man, you've said that the same way eight times. Change it up for me. I'm not grabbing what you're saying. And then uh, I had him for like eight, nine, ten, you know, just squeaking through math. Then grade 11, I had Miss Lauman. She's kind of a prickly lady, but at the beginning of the year, she said, you have Miss Lauman? Yeah. Um, the, uh, she said at the beginning of the year, I don't know if she still does this, but she's like, I wasn't good at math. And so I'm going to teach you math, but I'm also going to teach you about how I learned math and I'm going to tell you all the mistakes I made and all the things that I thought were true. And she really held up to it. She'd be like, when I was figuring this out, um, this, is what I th this is how I thought it worked, and that's wrong. But this is what I thought. And I'm like, that's exactly what I think right now. <laughs> that's how I thought it worked. Thank you so much for speaking my language. You, knew, you, know, you know what it's like to be me. Thank you. And so uh, she knew what it was like, did not understand math, and overcame it and had the power to actually teach me. Like she, she conquered math and, help, and it could help me way better because she conquered it. And uh, I think that's the best analogy that I could think of in my own life for what Jesus offers to do. He's like, I know where you're at. Also, I'm not stuck there. Yeah, it falls apart because he never was stuck there, but you get it. So, let's read verse 16 again. And it says this. Um, 
Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So much tension in that. Let us approach with confidence because we need him. So I don't know what you need this morning. I don't know whether there's a a timidity or a shame that's resting on you and there needs to be like an impartation of truth to your heart right now, which you're fully welcome to ask for. Be like, God, can you remind me who I am? Can you remind me that I'm like JFK's kid underneath the Oval Office table? Like there's nothing that I can do that could separate you. You've, you've done everything. Maybe you need to approach the throne with confidence today. Maybe that you need to recognize your time of need. Maybe there's entitlement in your heart. Maybe this whole Christianity thing has become kind of humdrum and you're like, you have expectations and there's a belittling of sin and distance in your life that, and, and, and your sin doesn't grip you. It doesn't turn your heart inside out because it's distancing you from God. Maybe your little shame is flickering this morning. Not as, not as an identity, but as a pointing. But as a pointing to what is not connected and reconciled in you. So, uh, as you think about your devotional life and you think about you making the effort and going, you know, making the effort to attend the thing you were invited to, I would encourage you to remember that it's not a destination of like, if you accept the invitation and I'll be way over here and you gotta make it. That's called religion and that's not what's being preached this morning. Jesus as our great high priest is so fantastic because he's with us in the journey to the invitation. And he never leaves you or forsakes you. And in that progression and in that mission and in that, in that uh, direction, we're able to experience him in all sorts of ways because he's powerful to meet us in both the journey and in the destination. And so I just think grace is amazing. I think it's amazing. And we've spent six weeks trying to unpack the reality of who God is and what he's done and the invitation that that implies. And I can't, I can't, bring conviction to you. I can't do that. I could put a quiver in my voice or I could speak a little louder if you wanted to, if it helped you. But at the end of the day, you have a standing invitation. And it's, I didn't send that to you. He did, every single one of you. So I don't know what response looks like for you now. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. Can I throw an audible at you, Rage? Can we sing Highlands again? And, uh, um, Yeah, Matt, I'm just going to go straight into worship, if that's cool. And there's going to be some things available to you right now. There's going to be communion available. The communion people, you can put that out. If you need to be reminded of your identity and what's been accomplished for you, I would encourage you to participate in communion. If you're feeling like you're wearing shame as an identity, that's tables for you. You have a standing invite to dinner. If, there's a, if you need some conviction in your heart, then I would encourage you to go get prayer. We're confessing our sins to each other. These are safe people. You know, you could talk to someone who brought you or whoever, but that's a really handy way to feel the weight of your sin is to share it. And, uh, or you could sit and worship and just ask God to meet you and to bring conviction to your heart. That's why we're here today. That's so you kind of have a buffet of options to encounter God. That's what these mornings are for. 
And I would encourage you to encounter him and make the effort to respond to the standing invitation. Lord, uh, we come before you now as just people who are just desperately aware of our need for your grace. And we just say again how amazing it is. And would you help us feel the weight of that amazement? God, would you put awe back into our hearts of who you are and what you've done? And would you give us the confidence to boldly approach you right now? And maybe, I know for me, Lord, it just looks like recognizing the importance of every moment as an opportunity to respond to you and not just letting moments go by. And so probably I, f- I pray that you would help us make the effort <laughs> and remind us again that you are with us in every effort we take. That's what it means to have grace empower our effort is you're never separate from us. And so I feel like there's just, even, I don't know, even prophetically, but there's people that need to recognize that God is not an, some distant objective, that he's here with you right now, and that any effort you would take this morning is, is hand in hand with him. Just hand in hand. Maybe somebody needs to hear that. But whatever the response looks like, re- response and effort looks like on your part, would you just like, you know, feel his hand in yours and leading you? He's not a destination. He's a person who's with you and can empathize with you. So Lord, thank you for those realities this morning and would you convict our hearts. In Jesus' name.